welcome back to another episode of Banter, the official policy podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Max Frost. Here with me, as always, is my loyal sidekick, <laughs> Matt J. Winesett. You know, my Matt. middle name is not Jay. What is your middle name? Do you honestly think it's Jay? What's your middle name? Hamilton. I knew that. I had to edit Joining me today is my loyal sidekick, Matthew Hamilton Winesett the third. I had to. Uh, I wish I was the third. I had to edit out the J last time. You did that like a, <laughs> a week or two ago, and I know I didn't notice it at the time. But then I, in the production phase, I was like J, so I just you know highlighted and deleted Hamilton. Yeah, Are you descended from Alexander e. Hamilton. The Hamilton, the one the Broadway musicals about. <laughs> I, I wish. No, this is why I'm, I've always been. Despite you know the propaganda we were fed at the University of Virginia, always kind of skeptical of Thomas Jefferson because Hamilton was far and away the superior founder, and they disagreed on a lot. Well, Thomas Jefferson kind of wanted us to be like a rural society, yeah, like an where, agrarian republic, yeah. full of yeoman farmers. Whereas, whereas Hamilton, Hamilton wanted us to be a urban, a great commercial power, which yeah. which we became. Yeah, I guess he won. Although, who did win? Because it wasn't even. The central bank came and went, right, over a period of like 100 years. Sometimes we had it, sometimes we didn't. Yeah, but we're definitely in Hamilton's America now. But I mean, what, what, it, what it came down to me was I took that history of the American Revolution class and for one of the long papers we had to write, I was reading a bunch of the letters between one to the other. And I think Hamilton had some funny quote where, you know, like whenever Hamilton wanted to introduce a plan for a bank or anything, anything like that, he always heard complaints from Jefferson and the southern states about how it's going to impinge on the liberty of the southern states. And then Hamilton responded, like, I think quoting maybe Samuel Johnson from England, how ironic it is that you always hear the loudest yelps for liberty from people that have a slave whip in the other hand. I Hamilton mean, said that. Yeah. Hamilton was like, I mean, he he's from the Caribbean. He was an immigrant to America. And he was the least hit, like, despite, you know, the South always crying about liberty, liberty, liberty. Hamilton was one of the few ones that was pretty avidly anti-slavery. Liberty, liberty, live. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why I float off the tongue so well. Well, with that, we have an excellent podcast for you today. Speaking of immigration. <laughs> Speaking of immigration. We're joined today by Jason DeParl. Jason DeParl is a writer with the New York Times, and he joins us today to talk about his new book, A Good Provider is One Who Leaves, One Family and Migration in the 21st Century. So Jason will tell you about this in the interview, but he moved to Manila in the Philippines in the 80s to move in with the family in a shantytown for about eight or 10 months of the year, I believe. And just over the last few decades or so has kind of kept up with, kept in contact with this family that he stayed with. And through this family, he tells the story of how global migration trends have changed in the past few decades and what it all means in the world. Yeah. So the book is an interesting read and we enjoy the conversation. So without further ado, here is Jason DeParle. Jason, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. All right, so the book is a piece of nonfiction, but it's written like a narrative. So why don't we just start at the beginning? Can you tell us how you got interested in this, how you ended up in Manila, and how you found this family that you followed? I went to Manila in 1987 as a young journalist interested in slum life in the developing world. Um, migration was far from my mind. I wanted to move into a shanty town and live close with a family, try to get a more intimate view of um, shanty town life. Uh, I found a family to move in with. Um, and it turned out that migration was how they survived. The father of the family was a guest worker in Saudi Arabia. The mom was home raising five kids on the money he sent back. Uh, we grew close, stayed in touch uh, after I left, and all five of those kids grew up to become overseas workers like the father. So the family provided a kind of natural narrative vehicle to explore the rise of global migration over two generations and now into its third. 
So how did you first get into that? I mean, did you just show up in Manila and go <laughs> knocking on doors in the towns or? Um, well, pretty much. No, um, so there was a famous nun in the in the Philippines who lived and worked in a slum called Leverisa. I approached her uh, and she was a little skeptical uh, about me moving in, but said to come back in a few days. I thought in the meantime, she would approach a family and make a discreet inquiry. And instead, I came back. And uh, she grabbed me and dragged me through the alley and sort of auctioned me off on the spot. Yeah, the <laughs> first family she came to, I, I knew just enough Tagalog to know this woman was horrified. No sister, no sister's not possible. Can't we? The second woman, same thing. And the third woman was struck mute. Uh, uh, <laughs> sister Christine had had enough of this. Uh, so she stomped off and she said, um, yeah, if you don't want him, pass him on to someone else. Don't cook him anything special. If he gets sick, too bad. And she walks away. And Tita, the woman I moved in with and I were left face to face and um, we drew a crowd actually um, you know entertainment in the shanty town was hard to come by and we, we were it <laughs> yeah, what did they th I mean is this a common experience for locals in the Philippines you know random westerners I, coming in and I, I, <laughs> asking for room and board <laughs> uh, not in the least the woman across the alley said months later um, you know I always wondered couldn't you afford a hotel um, uh, oh. it, it was uh, I, I don't know who was more frightened by it or who thought it was odder, you know, me, me or them. It was uh, not, a, not a usual arrangement, and it took a little while to break the ice, you know, when I, when I first moved in. So through this experience, you became involved, you kind of tracked this family over decades. Which... I lived with them on and off for eight months. I left the Philippines in 19, at the end of 1987, didn't know for sure I'd ever see them again. We stayed in touch with letters and calls for 20 years, and then I went back to write a piece about them for the New York Times Magazine. Hmm. And in that 20 years, all five kids grew up to become overseas workers, and migration became a global phenomenon, even more than it had been. Um, I think the, the light bulb moment for me, what really suggested to me the power of migration or what, what a force it was on the world stage was when I discovered that remittances, the money that work, overseas workers send home to their families, uh, were three times the world's foreign aid budgets combined. I mean, wow. migration was the world's anti-poverty program. And that's what helped me see the importance in their personal story. Yeah, so what were the factors that led to their migration first to the Middle East? Like, I, I mean, what makes this Middle Eastern Saudi Arabian job market that much more appealing to them than the local Philippines job market? Emmett, the father of the family, was a pool maintenance man. Mm -hmm. um, by going to Saudi Arabia, he raised his pay 10 times. Wow. So he lived in a shanty with a leaking roof, and he had a sick daughter who couldn't afford medicine. He, at one point, dropped to his knees and prayed to God about his daughter, take her or let me have her. Please, Lord, heal her um, and, uh, uh, or take her with you to heaven. Mm -hmm. And uh, a few days later, God answered in a, in a mysterious way. With a, Someone came to him with a job offer in Saudi Arabia. Wow. So he went for two years, didn't see his family for two years, um, worked overseas, uh, came back, fixed up the shanty, stayed home for a month or two, went back for two years, back and forth for 20 years like that. And then his children did the same. Something that the whole relationship i spent i spent a year in india after graduated college and also nepal and i met so many people who had gone to the gulf to work yeah and something that's so interesting you know here this everyone knows about this thing where like kind of like indentured servitude of south asians or filipinos mm -hmm. going to the middle east um and you hear a lot about the negative side of it but i also met so many people when i was over there who went who essentially went from being you know, very lower class people, they would go work for a few years and come back and build houses for their families or set up their own businesses in India um, or Nepal. 
So it's kind of an interesting thing just to hear kind of a different spin on this than the classic, you know, they're taking their worker cards, locking them up, forcing them to work, and it's a bad experience. That part of the story, the the exploitation half of the story, is certainly real and large and disturbing, and it's half the story. And, yeah. and the other half is uh, – Tita, the mother, she's the oldest of 11 children, the, the mother I work with. Uh, she had a, a, a sixth grade education. Her younger sister wound up getting a, a PhD wow. with remittances that um, relatives had sent back from working in the Gulf. So um, what captures that to me was the um, logo of the Overseas Workers Welfare Administration, the Filipino government agency that is charged with protecting workers as they go abroad. Uh, it's it's a split shot of the sun and the rain. Hmm. So the, the government itself can't make up its mind, you know, is it sunshine or rain, migration? It's the two are so deeply entwined in, in Filipino culture. When, when they go abroad, they don't say, I'm going to get rich. They say, I'm going to try my luck. Hmm. Why is there such a high demand in the Gulf states in the Middle East for these foreign workers? I feel like we always hear about high levels of unemployment among Middle Eastern countries. Is there just that much demand for work that they have all these well, high employment is in other is in Egypt and in um, Jordan um, uh, where the Filipinos and the uh, and the South Asians are going or to the Persian Gulf which have very small populations and huge amounts of oil uh, so uh, the Philippine mar- migration started after 73 after the oil embargo when Saudi Arabia was just awash in petrodollars and had no workforce but needed to build a country needed to build roads hospitals airports schools and the Philippines had a very highly educated, often English-speaking workforce and no jobs, so they were uniquely paired. You mentioned that you'd been in in, uh, in India, Nepal. I took a trip through Nepal once um, with a World Bank economist. We got down to some remote village, and I was staring at one guy. He was home from the um, from the Gulf, uh, visiting his family, and there was something odd about him. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Then I realized what it was. He was the first person I'd met in Nepal with a paunch. Wow. Yeah, I mean, they saw that. I remember I was on a train um, in India, and you know, it's very. You have the non-AC cars and the AC cars, and essentially, the people who have money ride in the AC cars. The people who don't have money ride in the non-AC cars, and we're in the AC cars. And typically, with that, most of the people speak English, you know, because in India, if you're educated and you have money, you speak English. And this guy sitting next to us didn't speak any English, not like none at all. And I was kind of wondering, like, what was that? He just—you could tell that he kind of was of a di- yeah. different yeah. Uh-huh. upbringing. Than everyone yeah. else, and I started talking. To, I speak Hindi. I started talking to him, and he's then he started explaining. He was from the Gulf. He was from a small village. and went there. So just like that, I mean, it's it's kind of amazing. Um, the Tita uh, ended up moving back to the farm where she had been raised, left Manila, the slums, and moved back to this family land. Um, and there's um, a semicircle of homes, maybe thirteen of them. And it's like uh, an uh, ocular form of carbon dating. You can just look and tell approximately how long each resident has been abroad, right? So the guy who went for five years has cement blocks, but you know no glass windows. And the guy who went for ten years has a second kitchen in the back. And if you went for twenty, you know, Tita had gone for twenty, or her husband went for twenty years. She had a pink bungalow with a yeah. private water tank. I mean, you can just see the the difference it makes in their lifestyle. Yeah. So, so how did they how did they end up in the U.S.? I mean, I know it's one thing to go work in the Gulf, but it's another thing to get 
the visa to come work in the United States. I imagine it's much much harder. Right. So the book's about an extended family, and only one of them made it to the United okay. States. She's the most successful. She used her father's remittances to get through nursing school. Then she had to pass a series of tests first to get the Philippine credentials. Then she had to pass tests to get the Persian Gulf credentials. Then she had to pass tests to get the American credentials. Ended up taking her 20 years, but wow. she finally, wow. finally got to the States. And she got to the States because a hurricane hit Galveston Island and destroyed the hospital and Galveston couldn't get enough nurses to come back to the island. Tried for years, $5,000 bonuses, couldn't get them to come back to this. It was kind of a Katrina sort of thing where you know, six of the population didn't come back. And only after they couldn't fill those jobs and had tried for years did they begin hiring abroad wow. and Rosalie got her chance. So what is the process like for someone like Rosalie who's pretty highly educated trying to come to the US? How long does it, does it take a long time to get a visa? Is there a lot of competition? Like what, what's the... The hurricane thing is a little different for her, but if she was without the hurricane, does she just enter a lottery and hope that her name is called, or how does it work? There's a visa category. Um, she's an E3 visa, um, and the nurses are in the same category as engineers. And so she got caught in a backlog with people who had come on temporary H1B um, temporary visas and like Indian Indian engineers, and were trying to get convert over to permanent residents, they're in the same pool. So there was a real shortage of nursing visas for even after you pass all these tests and qualify, you can wait six, seven years to get the visa and then you have to wait for the job. Um, so she got, she went through all that with the test, then waited for the visa. And as soon as she finally got eligible for the visa, the 2008 recession hit and she was no jobs. Yeah, the nurses kept their jobs. Yeah. Wow. So then she... This one came to the U.S. and she had kids in the U.S. or brought her kids to the U.S.? Yeah, it's complicated. Um, <laughs> she'd been in the Persian Gulf. The kids were mostly in the Philippines with her parents. So, um, I mean, they, she visited them a couple times a year, but basically the family hadn't lived together. The kids were nine, seven, and five. Then coming to the States, they all reunited in the States. So they weren't, they were learning to live to, not only learning how to live in a new country, but they were essentially learning how to live together as a family for the first time. Wow. So what role then does family-based migration or chain migration play in Rosalie's story? Because that's a, one of those terms now that you hear a lot of people in the Trump White House and some GOP senators want to end, I, I think, what they call chain migration. Would that yeah. have prevented Rosalie's children from immigrating as well? Or? No, I think chain is extended. Family. That's more like cousins. Yeah. So all, she was able, under her visa, she had a green card, um, under her visa, she could bring her immediate family. So she brought her husband and three kids. But that was a big factor in why she wanted to come to the U.S. instead of the Persian Gulf. It wasn't just money. In fact, for the first few years, she was, it was more of a break-even proposition given how much more expensive it was in Texas. Mm -hmm. And she was a, still on a contract, so she didn't have full benefits at the hospital. Um, what she really, what really drew her to the United States was the chance to bring her children and to have a sense of permanence. She wanted to become an American in a way that she could never become an Emirati. Yeah, well, that, that was going to be my next question is to what, to what extent is immigration to the U.S. driven by, obviously, it's different for everybody. But in this case, to what extent is it driven by wanting to be an American versus just the money and the payoff? So I would never say money had nothing to do with it. Of course yeah. it did. I mean, she grew up in a shanty and she wound up um, in a four-bedroom home in the Houston suburbs. I mean, it was a profound transformation in her life and probably the most impressive anti-poverty story I've seen. Um, mm -hmm. But it was more than just the money, because if it was just the money, it would have been easier to, to stay in, in the Gulf. She had the United States up on a pedestal. It was uh, a ma it, it, It's kind of like 
the Filipino equivalent of go, going to Harvard. It was just the best thing you could do if you could get to the United States. It was a, a matter of career prestige, and it was a matter of permanence for her family, and it was a matter of success, a matter of you know, achieving her dreams. She really wanted to be in the United States. That's beautiful. I mean, that like honestly, that's just awesome. Like, best part about America, I think, is just how. I mean, it's, it seems kind of unique. Um, maybe this is just you know arrogant American exceptionalism, but it does seem like a unique place where people, anyone can truly become an American here in a way that you can't become like a, you know, a Saudi Arabian if you just go and work there. And what was interesting about that is she could articulate it. Yeah. So she's educated in the sense that she's a nurse, but she's not an intellectual. She doesn't talk about. Um, it wouldn't use the term American exceptionalism, but she understood the concept that she, yeah. that there was something different about being here and something lasting. And um, yeah, she wanted her kids to Americanize, and yet at the same time, she felt a certain immigrant ambivalence about them. She was afraid of it too. Like maybe they would somehow absorb bad values. She wanted them to keep their, she always talked about them keeping their Filipino values, which yeah. I think she meant by that uh, uh, obedience to, to authority, respect for your parents, putting the family unit first. Um, so there was always a kind of a conflict going on as her kids rapidly Americanized. You know, she was cheering it on and afraid of it at the same time. Yeah. Well, those are good American values too, I hope sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> family values and, you know, loving your family. They, her kids are now honor roll students, I think, in Texas. She has a nice suburban home. This sounds like the most picture, like the ideal assimilation that people, immigration skeptics in America talk about wanting. So what, what aided them in that assimilation? Can I go back to what you said sure. just a second? Yeah. about? Um, and yes, Americans respect family yeah. too. When she came to, to stay with me before she went to, to Galveston, she was very alarmed to hear that Americans send their children away at 18. <laughs> That uh, they they take the idea of independence. She was she it was, she was really bothered by the notion that Americans try to teach their children to think for themselves and to promote independence and to go away. Um, so her her vision of the perfect college would be a commuter college where her kids could come and you know, stay stay with her, live with her, live in her home. So uh, it, it's a vision of family, but it's a different vision of family. Yeah. Uh, um, you asked. I'm, I'm, I'm with the I'm sorry, Yeah. Uh, say, say the question again. Sorry. So. I mean, when you hear about immigration, it's become a very polarizing issue in America. But then you read something like this, and these, I mean, her kids, she has this nice job, suburban house outside of Houston, I think. Kids are on the honor roll. This seems mm -hmm. like the any any immigration skeptic would look at this and think this is the perfect immigration assimilation story. How how common is this and what you know what what helped her on this path? Right. So there's forty four million immigrants in the United States and no one can stand um, for the for all of them. Mm -hmm. um, Rosalie had certain advantages that other immigrants don't have. She had professions. She came in legally. Um, so she doesn't stand for every immigrant. I think she stands for a, a very large group of immigrants who um, tend to be overlooked in all the focus on the border. I mean, it's, look, it's essential that we cover the border. It's a uh, uh, illegal immigration is a uh, a, a big issue for the United States. It deserves the attention it gets. It deserves the attention it gets, but it tends to overshadow um, the three quarters of the immigrants who are here legally and and often quite successful, like Rosalie. Well, isn't I remember? I, I think of it as the you know the the immigration story missing from the presidential Twitter feed. It's um, it's not that other kinds of immigration don't exist. It's just that this part has been overshadowed. Yeah, and well, which is such a. I mean, it's just such a striking thing. And so now I graduated from college three, just over three years ago. And I know the way it works with the student visas is people get three, you know, you get three years to work if you get a job after you graduate. And then after three years, you get put into a lot. If your company sponsors you, you go into the lottery and then 
Um, you don't go back. Uh, or, well, you have to get a visa to stay. And um, two of my friends, one from India, one from China, one works for like a big investment firm in New York, another works for a consultancy in D.C. Um, both of them lost – both of them did not get the visa lottery. And these are people – They, I mean, now they've been in the U.S. for seven years since they started college. Um, and now they both got to go back home. And it's such a – I mean, you know, obviously there's arguments. I mean, for everyone who – some people get it. Some people don't get it. It's the nature of a lottery. But at the same time, whenever we hear about all these, we hear so much about the border and so much about legal immigration. You know, these are people who are trying to legally immigrate here and pretty much to live the same exact lives that any of any of us would want. I mean, they want to go back to graduate school. They want to go work. They want to do whatever. And it's just such a, I think it's a shame that we don't hear so much about these immigration stories and so much about like the really polarizing and the, the ones that kind of stress people out and lead to political polarization. If illegal immigration didn't exist and we still and we had tens of millions of immigrants coming to this country, nearly a record share of the population, that would be a huge story, right? It's like 1910s in in America. You, this this these tens of millions of people from every corner of the earth are going to transform our country economically, culturally, politically. They're going to have repercussions for decades to come. You would think we'd be covering that story about their effect on society much more intensely than we are. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that too. One one statistic you hear a lot from people that do want to restrict immigration a little bit is that the foreign-born share of the population is now at its highest point since the 1910s or so. And then after that period, we had a new immigration restriction law that very sharply restricted immigration that was in effect, I think, until 1965, right, with that new Correct. immigration reform. How much did the 65 reform, you know, change the trajectory of American immigration? And I mean, do you see an argument for Usually the restriction in this case would be we just need – throughout our history, we've had like punctuations where we slow down immigration, let assimilation catch back up, and then we kind of turn the spigot back on and let immigrations – immigrants come. As a matter of historical fact, that's exactly right. I mean there was a um, period of intense high immigra mass immigration from 1880 to 1924. Um, there was a very strong restrictionist law passed in 1924, basically – Eliminated immigration for four decades and then it came back after the 1960s. So as a matter of historical fact, there was a hiatus and it probably did um, – was one of the things that um, aided the assimilation of that generation. You can argue about whether that – we live in a different world. You can argue about whether the economic, social, political forces dictate a, um, an, another hiatus now. But, but just as a matter of historical comparison, it's true. Yeah. And then world immigration trends now, are we in like a, a new, totally new era where there's just tons of more people are wanting to immigrate now than they have in the past? Or is this, you know, analogous to previous times in world history? Well, nothing's entirely new. There's there's strong echoes of previous times, but I think there are some things that are different. The economic incentives to move have grown. So um, the pay raise that, that, say, a Central American laborer might get by getting to the U.S. now is approximately twice as high as what it was for um, his Sicilian counterpart a century ago. You know, both increased their their economic status greatly, but but the rewards are twice as great now as they used mm -hmm. to be. So that because the in global inequality has grown so much, so that's one factor. Another factor is technology. Um, you know, instant communication. You've been in South Asia. I'm, I'm sure you know every village, right? They've got Facebook. They've got cell phones. They know the immigration opportunities, and they can see the difference it makes. So that also plants the – helps sustain the networks, plants the idea of migration. Um, uh, uh, the cost of transportation has has uh, has shrunk. 
I'd say another thing that's a profound difference in Amer in uh, this age of migration too is that more women are going as breadwinners, and um, particularly as caregivers. And uh, so you have millions of women going abroad to raise other children, while people back home raise their children. You know, yeah, that's a it's just something new. It's big. Well, I was, I was going to ask in this case, um, it's about and the woman who ends up in the U.S. is a woman. How common is that for someone from a place like the Philippines to yeah, migrate? Yeah, it's very common. Uh, at one point in by the 1990s, three quarters of the new migrants going abroad from the Philippines were women. Really? I mean, migration has profoundly feminized across the world. And it's got several implications. One is uh, it throws a wrench into gender relations. Um, it's a force of empowerment for women, right? Particularly when they're coming from traditional cultures. It's also a source of tension often because they're kind of upstaging the men and sometimes the men, you know, it complicates the relationships. Uh, it's an empowerment story, but it's not purely an easy, all positive one. For, you yeah. know, it complicates people's lives. And the other thing is just, of course, it takes them away from their children. And um, I think sometimes it's harder for the mothers even than the children. Often, it depends on, of course, the situation, but sometimes the children are actually in good care with their grandparents and they have more money because the mom's sending home money, but the mom's really bereft. We would be remiss not to ask about the effect on the U.S. native population. We, I, I think there was an article in The Economist this past week where there's record shares of percentage of the population in Latin America, Middle East, Africa, I think over 30% in, in all those regions would like to leave their countries and immigrate if they could. I assume a lot of them would like to come to the U.S. How, how much immigration can or should the U.S. allow before I mean, just we, we do owe responsibilities to native-born citizens as well. My own sense is that uh, America's absorptive capacity is great. Um, then its powers of assimilation are formidable. But I don't have a number in mind. I can't tell you whether the right number of immigrants a year is 800,000 or 900,000 or a million. Um, I think what I'm more concerned about is that um, the tone of the rhetoric about immigration has turned so negative that we may impede the assimilation we say we want. I mean, if you tell people long enough and loudly enough that they're not wanted, they may come to believe you. So whatever number we decide to have, I think uh, um, we want to preserve a sense of welcome and, uh, and incorporation into the civic life. Yeah, I mean, it really, it really is something so amazing that we, I feel like we kind of take it for granted. But the the other night, I was going out to Georgetown, and I Ubered over there. Uber driver there was Iranian. Um, Uber back, the one coming back was Indian. I forgot my credit card at the place I was at. I had to go back. Pakistani took me back. Come back. A Guatemalan Italian was the fourth Uber driver who drove me back. Um, and it, it's, I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. And each of them said, "Yo, yeah, I do this at night. You know, I've got another job during the day. One guy owned a gas station. One guy owned a maintenance company. I mean." It's just incredible, like really, just to think that we live in a place where we have all these different people from every background. Like you know, the journalist Jim Traub said to me at one point, um, uh, "Diversity is a value, but it's also a taste." So I can understand. You're you're exactly right. Our country has undergone a profound transformation, and I can understand that some people may not like it. It doesn't necessarily mean they're racist. It doesn't. Um, you know, it's a. It, it it's a big difference in, in American life than it was before. And I think people who like immigration need to understand that and um, and be careful not to portray everyone who dislikes it as being you know, inherently racist or xenophobic. Or, yeah. 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 And I mean, there are some academic studies, too, that the people that are more pro-immigrant are the people that live around immigrants. So to the point about diversity maybe being a taste, just exposure to it can make you much more favorable to it as well. 
Or, and there's uh, a class bias. I mean, I think supporters of immigration need to be clear about that. People with more education and more income tend to benefit more by it, um, and people with less don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, we're almost out of time here, so one more question. If the current White House or any future White House brought you in and said, Jason, you are our new special advisor in immigration, <laughs> what is one thing or just one, the first takeaway you would want to tell them? <laughs> Take away Trump's Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's not an option. That's got to be something else. <laughs> it goes back to what I said earlier. I'm less worried about numbers than I am about tone and narrative and rhetoric. You know, I want America to remain a place where Rosalie, at the end of her four years, turned to me and said, this is my home. Yeah, that's what I want for America. Seems like something Great. we all should want, really. Yeah, hopefully you get in there soon. Jason, thank you for coming on. We really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, thank you all for listening. We hope that you enjoyed. If you did, as always, retweet us, subscribe us, like us, follow us. You know what to do. Facebook us. Facebook us. I don't have Facebook, but. Yeah, you brag about that one more time on the podcast. I don't have Facebook. Facebook. You heard it here first. No, but if you like to tell your friends, that's probably the most important thing. If you tell your friends, they'll tell their friends. And then they'll tell their friends. And theoretically, you're starting an endless chain of new subscribers. As you like to say here at AI, there is no such thing as free lunch. And you are listening to this podcast for completely free. So we would ask you, rather than give us a donation. Stop yelling into the microphone. Rather than giving us a donation (laughs) and supporting your favorite podcast, we would just say pay it forward. Tell your friends. Make sure they subscribe. And pretty soon Matt and I will become internet famous viral sensations with the most with the hottest podcast in the world. I'm pretty sure that's AEI's largest fear. (laughs) (laughs) This becoming big enough to get them into trouble. (laughs) No, but thank you guys for listening. Speaking of viral sensations, I'm sick and tired of Andrew Yang not getting any respect from anybody. What Yang blackout. Yeah. <laughs> what is his actual theory on that, that the media is just not covering him? I don't know. I just see on Twitter. The media is not covering him. I mean, the coverage given to him compared to other candidates polling at similar levels is atrocious. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, he has no chance of winning. So I don't know, that's a thousand bucks in my pocket. I think just because the Democratic Party doesn't really want him to do well. I think that's the bigger issue because he doesn't really adhere to all their platform policies. Yeah. Planks. Yeah. Not, not, not at all. The thing about him is when like in the debate the other night, I mean, he really is not he's telling such a different story than the rest of Democrats who are saying upward mobility is dead or upward mobility isn't what it used to be. And if you're poor, you're stuck poor because people have screwed you over or whatever, especially like the Bernie Sanders line. Andrew Yang's model, he says, look, my parents came here as immigrants. I'm now running for the president of the United States. But he, all, he at the same time, he's saying, look, there's issues that we have to confront. Well, and it- giving people the ability to solve the problems themselves. That's the opposite. Other people are saying, look, the government will fix your problems for you. And he's saying, no, the government will give you money so you can do it yourself, which is a much – to me, I mean, I don't know how I feel about him, but – how I feel about the policy exactly, but it's it's refreshing compared to the other ones. Because- yeah, but his story is also – I mean, in one way, he's more uplifting because – so many other people are so doom and gloom about upper mobility. But his whole campaign is premised on the notion that all of us are kind of screwed because the robots are going to take ever over. Yeah. And no one will have upper mobility anymore, so we just have to pay them off with the universal basic income. So I don't know if that's much yeah, more like optimistic. He, he said in one of the debates, uh, you want fewer people in jail. How about we pay them not to be in jail or something like that? How about pay me for not going to jail? I know. Like, <sighs> yeah, but at the same time, I mean, dude, did you watch the debate last week? No, I couldn't for some reason. Missed it. Well, when you every single issue that comes up, every single issue is just saying the government should do this. The government should do this. The government should do this. Obviously, they're running to president, so they have to lay out government policies. 
all the policies are government-centric. You have an issue, let the government fix it. And it's almost, I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, even like, there's just varying degrees of to what extent the government should, from like this, you know, moderate Democrats, really, to me, there's only one of them, yeah. to the end. That's all it is, is varying degrees of to what extent the government should be involved in every single issue. And it's like completely, I mean, it removes people of their agency. I mean, it's... I'm, That's the biggest issue is the lack of agency. And I, I like the, as much as the UBI seems to be not a great idea to my mind, at least it does in some ways respect people's agency where they give you this money, no strings attached, you can do whatever you want with it. Yeah. But, but the downside, like maybe this is why it's not looked so highly upon anymore in liberal circles is because they're terrified of the argument that Charles Murray here at AEI has made before that it's kind of a tool of libertarianism because you give people, I think Charles Murray's plan was a thousand bucks a month plus an additional 500 a month for healthcare or something like that. And then that's it. And that, and that would foster greater personal responsibility because everybody would know that you're getting a reliable check and it would kind of cut off the need for anything additional welfare or otherwise given to them. And I don't know if the people that I don't know if the more statist wing of the progressive wing wants to wants to accept that. But again, I just don't think it's a good idea because why? Like it wouldn't take that long before, say we had a, say we implemented a UBI tomorrow by fiat. It would not take long for just through the natural congressional process to scale it. Where oh well, what if this? What if you're blind? Don't you need more money? Well, that's, for that? that's the issue. Oh well, what if you're Bill Gates? Don't you need less money then? It would, then ha- it would, have, it would have to be. Before long, it's constitutionally just, mandated. I mean, it would have to be an amendment to me that would say fix it, which that's why it would never work. Plus, I mean, but e- like even forgetting all that, even if it was, I just feel like within year, within a few years at the most, we'd just be back to where we kind of already are, where we want to give more money to people that need it more and less money or no money to people that don't need it at all. And if we're gonna, if we think we're gonna end up back there again anyway, why go through the whole charade? Yeah, I'm not convinced. I mean, I I think you would see a difference. I, I think I completely agree with the argument that it would just become another tool of, you know, protecting certain groups or giving money. It would be it would become the perfect tool for identity politics. Yeah, which is what makes it so dangerous. But in terms of, I think there would be an economic benefit. I don't, I don't see a way around that, and I think it would teach a lot of people personal responsibility. But this all comes back to something that we talked about a lot. I think where one of the biggest issues is even if people have a thousand dollars a month just for existing as an American over the age of eighteen. There's still – if you don't know how to spend your money and you don't know how to save and invest your money. Is this when you give – you know, go on your rant about millennials and avocado toast? They don't know how to save their money. Well, I know. Well, here's my my bigger fear with it is say we gave everybody $1,000 a month to help with the rent or health care. Wouldn't that just lead to price increases? And I mean I could easily see landlords and like in DC, I mean my rent is over $1,000 as it is. If all the landlords suddenly realize, hey, everybody now has a 1000 extra dollars. I just would imagine that rents would go up anyway because they know we would pay for it. Or do you think is that? I don't know. I mean, I mean, I mean, there's still. It's not like you're paying at like the top end of what you could pay right now. I mean, it's held down by competition. Yeah. Maybe there'd be maybe there'd be some increase, but if you think about a thousand dollars a month, and to what extent that's going to go to food, to savings, to this, to that, to paying off loans. I mean, to you name it, the extent to which the rent, you know, your apartment building will actually be able to jack up your rent. I don't think is going to be substantial. Yeah. I mean, Amazon's going to jack it up now that they've moved in here. So <laughs> you got to get a rent, rent control building. We all, yeah. Please, <laughs> listeners, if you know anyone that's offering, let me know. No, I, yeah, I just, I don't know. I, it's not going to happen regardless. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, there's definitely ideas about UBI that, in theory, it sounds fantastic in practice. I'm just not convinced it will work. But in any event, I'm more convinced now than ever. We will see Elizabeth Warren running for president. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, she's. Doing I mean, it right I, now. I mean, I think she'll get the nomination. 
Okay. Why do you say that? versus Trump. Because the I mean, there's definitely any. I mean, I don't know. A, I don't know a single person among my like, among the people in D.C. who I know who are liberal and Democrats who want Bernie or who want Joe Biden. They want somebody who's younger. They uh, Elizabeth Warren has like a cult following. I mean, she has such passionate supporters. When she talks, she's very, very. Uh, I mean, she's charismatic. Yeah, she's an excellent speaker. Um, I just. I just I think it'll be her. I think it's I think it's that time. Your rationale there. There's an old joke. I forget. I'm gonna butcher whoever it's about, but there was some like California Hollywood liberal that was like, "How the hell did Nixon win? I don't know a single person who voted for him." It's because they were in Hollywood. Well, We're talking about people in D.C. that love love Warren. No, but I mean, but I mean Biden. When first of all, Biden, when you watch him in the debate, he called Bernie Sanders again, Mister President. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's like he. Of course, he's who I would want to get the nomination, but. His, his polls are pretty resilient, though. For all I that. know, dude, but all, it's, all it could take is a couple bad gaffes, and then who knows? And then once he leaves, who's going to pick up all that slack? I mean, it's not – there are no other moderates. I mean, really. Yeah, but I don't know. Like, I remember this from the 2016 primary, too. The The whole idea of lanes and people naturally you know, falling into the lane of the next closest ideological compatriot after someone – like, if Bernie dropped out, you'd, there's this idea that all the Bernie supporters would go to Elizabeth Warren because – she is ostensibly the next closest thing to the Bernie platform, where I think the some polling shows that a lot of Bernie supporters actually prefer Biden to Warren. And the same thing where there's this whole theory that nobody wanted to attack Trump because in the primary because Trump they thought Trump's followers would go to them because of the Lane theory that like maybe Cruz thought he would capitalize on Trump voters and then Rubio thought who knows what the, who knows what everybody was thinking. But everybody had this idea that like oh well if this if X candidate falls. All their voters will naturally go to this to Y candidate. When in reality, no one really knows where the people where the chips are going to fall. I mean, who you think Biden's going to get it? He's been leading this whole time. You, you think he'll get the nomination? Yeah, I do. Another bet has been made just now. Interesting. Well, you heard it here first. Granted, I was wrong about the entire 2016, so don't don't my predictions don't mean anything. I mean, I don't know. I do live in a the definition of a bubble here <laughs> in in inner city DC. Yeah. Well. I mean, we know what we want is we want Andrew Yang to, to get back on that debate stage and, and stay there. So this is why, Andrew, if you're listening, you are officially invited on <laughs> to banter the AEI podcast. Now, I th- for, for, the, for that matter, all of y- all the Democratic candidates, we would love to get them in the studio. Any candidate is officially invited. So, you know, staffers who might be listening to this just to see what AEI is thinking, pass it on to your candidate. Banter. We want them on banter. Yes. All right, we'll be back next week with Andrew Yang. (laughs) I I, what the hell is that noise? Someone put this way back. It's not good for my lumbar support. Yeah.